Craig, take it away. This, uh, this, this group has way too much fun. That's the that is that is good. Oh, all right. Um, I don't know how to segue from that to what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> no, not open now. Maybe with prayer. Yeah. Actually, that's not a bad idea. How about how about if I how about if I do that? Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we have here. We we, we thank you, Lord, that we can enjoy each other. What a blessing Christian fellowship can be. It's so exciting. It's so uh, neat for Laura and I to be able to experience um, Southeast Baptist Tabernacle and what, what they have going here. What a, what a blessing, Lord. Um, faithfulness in ministry, love for each other, clearly. I do pray, Lord, that you'd help us as we think um, this morning um, about our marriages. You'd help us to think clearly um, about our own, uh, our own needs. And, uh, Father, may we be careful not to you know, point fingers at each other, but instead let your spirit examine our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. amen. All right. I think, I think one of the most um, Christian of Christian virtues is forgiveness. Uh, that's what we'll talk about this next, next uh, 45 minutes or so. Um, so the world has kind of weak versions of a lot of Christian virtues. You know, unbelievers can love, they can be patient, they can give grace, they can give mercy. And their version of those attributes are not as robust as the Christian versions of them, but they do exercise them. For example, unbelievers can and do love. Love, of course, defined by the world means never telling a person they're wrong or that their sin will harm them. It's not really love of neighbor, it's love of self, because love, by the world's definition, allows me to avoid all difficult conversations. Um, and, and there are times, obviously, that their love is less selfless than at other times, but often their expressions of love are kind of tainted with selfishness. It's the, it's the I like you because you like me kind of love. And Jesus said that's the easy kind of love. You know, loving your enemy, whoa, <laughs> that's what scripture says we can do. That's hard. There's nothing in that for an unbeliever. They get nothing from it, so they, they don't tend to do it. A Christian can love their enemies because they're empowered by the Holy Spirit and they want to please their Savior. So that's a robust Christian virtue. Unbelievers can love, but, but not like a believer could love. They don't even understand that type of love. But I, I think unbelievers don't even have a virtue called forgiveness. Now, I, they obviously know the word, they say the word, but I don't think they even have that virtue. They talk about it, but they don't really practice it. And honestly, when they see it, it surprises them. Uh, this story that I'm about to read to you happened over 30 years ago. But as a parent um, with, with kids in college, I hear it and I kind of imagine their pain even today. Um, Bruce Goodrich was being initiated into the cadet corps at Texas A&M University. If you know anything about Texas A&M University, I've never been there, but I watch college football. So um, they, uh, they have a corps of cadets that's part of the student body there. They wear military uniforms. You go through the school there and eventually, a lot of them commission as officers in the military, actually. 
Um, but they march on to the field in these military uniforms before all their football games. It's kind of a kind of a big deal. So Bruce Goodrich had been accepted at the Texas A&M University and then also accepted into this Corps of Cadets. And so they would meet the summer before school starts and have essentially um, a, a uh, uh, I can't even remember what it's called in the military now, uh, the, you know, the, uh, the, where they're getting in shape, whatever, what are they called? Basic training, basic training, something like that. And so he, he was, the junior cadets would be in charge of that. He's a freshman, the junior cadets would be in charge of that. And they ordered an exercise session that went too far. And so Bruce was forced to run until he dropped. They never got up. He died before he even entered college. Now, a short time after that, Bruce's father writes a letter to the administration, faculty, student body, and the Corps of Cadets. And if I didn't tell you he was a Christian, you would kind of imagine you'd know what the letter was going to be. He's going to, he's going to rip them up. But he's a believer. And he says this. I would like to take this opportunity to express the appreciation of my family for the great outpouring of concern and sympathy from Texas A&M University and the college community over the loss of our son, Bruce. We were deeply touched by the tribute paid to him in the battalion. We were particularly pleased to note that his Christian witness did not go unnoticed during his brief time on campus. Mr. Goodrich goes on. I hope it will be some comfort to know that we harbor no ill will in the matter. We know our God makes no mistakes. Bruce had an appointment with his Lord and is now secure in a celestial home. When the question is asked, why did this happen? Perhaps one answer will be so that many will consider where they will spend eternity. That's amazing. Our world does not understand that type of forgiveness, that a, an exercise which was pushed to the limit by farther than it should have been, and the dad responds with, God's in control. We don't harbor any ill will towards you for this. We expect that God will be glorified through this, that people will come to Christ through this. And it's common in our world to read uh, the news and find one of those you know, very common stories. I, 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 don't, I can't think of any specific one. I can't remember the particulars of any of them, but you've seen these where an athlete or a celebrity has said something unkind. It could have been about a person that had been assaulted. And all, all I know is that the family members is interviewed and their quote is something like this. I could never forgive him for that. That's the quote that goes around. You've heard that before too. About the only time that forgiveness is ever mentioned in um, the news is when someone is claiming that they cannot forgive. Our world talks about not forgiving, but they don't ever really forgive. And if there's one attribute missing from social media today, right? It's forgiveness. I mean, make a mistake when you're young and we're gonna beat you with it for the rest of your life. Uh, people have lost jobs because of something they said when they were 16 on social media. They lose jobs over that. The types of things that you and I said in our sinful immaturity that no one knows about other than the two people that were there when we said it, that's why I say forgiveness is one of the most Christian of Christian virtues. The world really doesn't understand forgiveness. Actually, it's interesting, a, uh, a secular author wrote in, it might have been uh, The Atlantic, which is hardly a conservative publication, and she wrote about our cancel culture 
and how and she she actually interviewed some people who had been canceled because um, they said something in a college class and so they ended up getting fired or they did this or that and w one of the one of the things that came out was these people want forgiveness and they can never find it they can never find forgiveness the truth is though even though it's a christian virtue even christians struggle to forgive right um, and, and the place forgiveness might be the hardest is in the home. That's not how Christ wants it. He wants us to forgive generously. It seems especially hard with those closest to us, though, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, it's harder to forgive family members. It's probably hardest to forgive your spouse. But, but is it possible that maybe some of your marriage difficulties are because you're not a forgiving person? Is it possible that you justify your unforgiveness? That, that you think you're the spiritually superior spouse and therefore you don't have to forgive them. So I, I think Matthew 18 is a really great passage. Again, this is a familiar passage to us and it's not specifically on marriage, but it's about relationships. And your primary human relationship is um, marriage. And so I think this is really, really helpful for us here. And what we find in, in Matthew 18, verses 21 through 22, is that Christ calls for generous forgiveness. Christ calls for generous forgiveness. So he, he's calling us to a standard of forgiveness that is much more generous than we want to be. Um, and, you know, maybe you think, well, isn't it natural for marrieds to be generous forgivers? Well, I wish that it were. But he calls us to generous forgiveness because it's inevitable that you will be sinned against. That's what we find in verse 21. It's inevitable that you'll be sinned against. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times? Now, it's, it's a hypothetical question. It's not an unrealistic one. Peter uses the future tense here to speculate that sometime a Christian brother might sin against him. In fact, this Christian brother will sin against him several times, as many as um, seven times. And Peter also assumed that, well, actually eight times. He, he, I would forgive him the, the seven times, but the eighth time I wouldn't forgive him. Um, and, and Peter assumed that he would have to forgive his brother in that case. And it's interesting that Jesus, when Peter asked this question, doesn't say, Peter, that's ridiculous. Of course, no Christian would ever sin against you that many times. Let's not deal with hypotheticals here, Peter. I mean, come on. Let's deal with reality. He doesn't. And if it's true, if Jesus takes that assumption and says, yeah, that could happen between any two Christian brothers, isn't it? possible that it could happen in marriage? I mean, you have two sinners who sin against each other probably every day. They see each other day after day. They live together. And sinners need forgiveness. So you, you do have to kind of hand it to Peter. He, he, he looks like he wants to be generous with his forgiveness. He knew he'd be sinned against. And the question is, how generous should my forgiveness be? If there's one thing lacking in the, the, the Christian marriages that I counsel, it's this idea of forgiveness. It's this idea of forgiveness. I've not had this experience, but other Christian counselors have had the experience where um, they counsel a couple and one of the spouses comes in with a notebook, a diary of every way that their spouse has failed and sinned against them. Now, I've not experienced that myself. That's the extreme. But, but many of us keep a mental tally um, and forgiveness, unforgiveness, really, really harms your relationship. It harms your marriage. So he calls us to forgiveness because it's inevitable that you'll be sinned against. It's also because your tendency is to limit your forgiveness. 
verse 22, your tendency is to limit it. Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Now, what is significant about Peter asking seven times? Seven was a number of completeness to the Hebrew mind. We, we've heard it called the perfect number, but it was kind of a, it was a, it was a number of completeness. We might use the word 100 as a number of completeness in our culture. We'd say, hey, that many, you get 100% on your test. Um, that, that, you know, 100, uh, in fact, I think, isn't there like in a little, you know, in, I'm terrible with texting, but isn't there like a little thing you can do that says 100 on it for some reason, like when you're really excited about something? I feel like that, so that, that would be our equivalent to that. Well, the Hebrew equivalent, I guess if they were texting back in the first century, they'd have put seven. That would have been what they would have been. Okay? That's a seven. Um, um, so, so Peter, he, the thing is, Peter more than doubles the prevailing wisdom. The prevailing wisdom of that day from the rabbis was you forgive a person three times, but after that, you don't have to forgive them after, after the same sin. So Peter, Peter says, no, I'm going to go seven. The problem is, what Peter's doing is he's still putting a cap on his forgiveness, right? I mean, we love limits, don't we? I mean, we like to know how far we have to go in being like Christ before we can stop. That's why legalism is so popular, even though we theor theoretically reject it. Many of us are kind of closet legalists. You know, we're, we're thinking, so how many services do I need to attend a month to be spiritual? And the answer is all of them, okay? That's what, <laughs> as a former pastor, that's the answer, okay? All right? <clears throat> But we like to think that. Or how much do I need to give in the offering to be doing the right amount? Or, or how much of my Bible do I need to read during the week to be acceptable to God? Or, or how often do I need to forgive my spouse? That's what Peter was asking. He really wasn't asking how generous should he be. He was asking, when can I stop being generous? And he looked at forgiveness like an accountant would. Let's count up your sins, and when you reach the upper limit of forgiveness, boom, I stop forgiving you. Peter thought that there were some things that just couldn't be forgiven. He believed that forgiveness has its limits. And we think that too. You know, pastors have had a woman in their congregation ask them, how much more do I have to take? Do I need to forgive my husband when he does that? And Peter, so Peter's not unlike us. We believe that forgiveness is a great virtue in theory. It's wonderful when others forgive each other. It's even better when people forgive me. But my situation is different. Because it happened to me, it's more serious and I don't think forgiveness is appropriate here. Christ says to forgive 70 times 7. That's an outlandish number, 490. It's ridiculously high. The, the whole point is Christ doesn't want you to keep track of your forgiveness. Peter says, I'll double it. Can I forgive him 7 times, and then the 8th time, boom, I can crush him. And Christ says, no, not, not 7 times, 7 times 70. 490 times. <clears throat> Why? Because no one's going to keep track of it that long. It's just this outlandish number. <clears throat> there should be no upper limit on our forgiveness. That's what he's saying. You see, the fleshly spouse keeps track of how often they're offended and gets vengeance. The godly spouse pours out generous forgiveness. And Jesus' standard for generous forgiveness is much higher than ours. You and I do tend to limit our forgiveness. Our spiritual superiority grows because of how forgiving we think we are. But even that's not generous forgiveness. That's being a number cruncher. You're keeping track of man, I am definitely the more forgiving spouse in this relationship. Um, and God's not impressed with that. So God wants us to generously pour out forgiveness. And, and if the story stopped after verse 22, it would be enough for us to generously forgive others. I mean, Christ, Christ told us to do it. That's all we need to hear, is that we're supposed to do that. But, but he also gives us here 
uh, a second reason why we must be generous forgiver, and that is you have experienced generous forgiveness. You know where the story's going. I, like I said, it's a familiar passage, and it nails us to the wall. 18, 23 through 27. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and all that he had in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved to compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. So Christ launches into the story, and I think the application is really obvious, isn't it? You know what he's talking about here. It's not some fictional king in some mythical kingdom somewhere. This isn't a, a once-upon-a-time story like you might tell your kids at night or your grandkids. He's not talking about some anonymous slave. He's describing God the Father and you and me. And we know this because of the descriptions of the slave and the king. So the, the first thing we see here is the slave had this unpayable debt. It's easy to find descriptions of how large this debt would be in today's currency, and it ranges from $10 million to a $1 trillion. Um, it's, just a, it's just a huge amount. The, the point isn't that we can figure out exactly how much money it is. It's, it's supposed to be this unbelievably large amount of money. Um, the talent was the highest known denomination of currency in the ancient Roman Empire. I don't know what our highest denomination of currency is. Do we have a $1,000 bill? I've never had one, okay? So I don't know if we have those or not. Maybe we do. So that, that's the point, is this is the highest denomination of currency that they had. And 10,000 was the highest number for which the Greek language had a particular word. It, it's, not, it's not that they couldn't count above 10,000. Of course they could. But this was the high, after, after 10,000, they were putting words together to make the numbers, as opposed to having a specific word. So the point was, the first century mind could not have imagined a larger debt. That's the point. It's unpayable in several lifetimes. This slave has no chance of paying this off. And that's you and me. I mean, that's what's going on. You, you had a debt that you couldn't pay. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. I, I, I love the, the, the parallelism here that Paul uses financial language as well. The wages of sin. What have you earned with your sin? See, the longer you live, you actually get more wages of sin. You get more in debt. We don't ever get out of debt by how we work, which is why salvation is not by works, it's by grace. Romans 3.20, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul says, you, you can't be justified by doing right, because you can't do the right. You can't do it. Those verses have impossible written all over them. And In other words, you weren't falling just a little bit short of God's demands. You were falling way short of them, just like I was. We had an unpayable debt. And the king is just here. The, 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 the slave has, a, has uh, acquired this massive debt on his own. The king is right to call him to account. He's not cruel or unloving because he expects the slave to pay his own debt. The king is just. And God is just to call you into account for your debt as well. Sometimes people struggle with this. They think that God should just kind of wink at it, you know, let it slide, hey, give you a thumbs up. Um, but the truth is, that's not how we react to debt, right? You know, if someone owes you money, you, you think they should pay it back, right? You know, like, ah, oh, no big deal. I mean, maybe it's a tiny amount you think that, but most of us, you know, we, we want people to pay the debt they owe us. Well, every unbeliever owes God. You owed God, and he expects you to pay up. And the penalty is severe here. 
this is the first century penalty for non-payment of debt. It, it sounds harsh to us, and it is harsh, but, but not as harsh as it sounds in 21st century years. In the first century, a man's family was considered his property, so it was acceptable to sell them to pay his debt. So that, that's a severe penalty, but in the first century, they would have said, well, that, yeah, that makes sense. That's what you have to do. But it's not more severe than the penalty that you and I deserved. What does Matthew 10, 28 say? And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. See, selling a family to slavery is nothing compared to the penalty of hell that you and I deserved. That's the picture here. The, the king here, so we, we, the, the king has an unexpected response as well, an unexpected response. There, there's no way that, so, so it's obviously, the story is obviously talking about you and God the Father. There's no way that this slave expected the king to forgive his debt. In fact, I guarantee the family members are expecting to be sold to slavery. Mom's probably already giving cheerful goodbyes to her kids. But this king, he is disposed towards mercy. He's disposed towards mercy. Listen to this, this slave's appeal. I mean, have you ever heard a more unbelievable story than this one? Give me time, and I'll pay back that trillion dollars. I mean, that, that's essentially what he's telling the king. Give me time, and I'll pay back that trillion dollars. Nobody has that time, okay? Nobody has that amount of time. So why does the king forgive the debt? It's not because this was a convincing story. He was already inclined to be merciful. The king is just to demand payment, but he's also gracious in that he doesn't demand it before the state. So, so it actually would have been gracious if what the king said, well, you know what? You still owe me this. I'm not going to sell you into slavery, but you're just going to continue to work. We're going to keep everything the way it is. You just keep working, even though you're never going to work it off. The king would have been gracious to do that. Let's just keep the status quo. But he went beyond that, and he forgives it completely. And God is just to make us accountable for our sins. But as we know, it's the gospel. He's also compassionate and willing to extend forgiveness. And a story like this helps all of us appreciate our salvation more. We're, we're just amazed. And we, we think about it, but man, I, I was that guy. I was that guy. Now, maybe, maybe you didn't even understand when you first got saved uh, all the ways that you had sinned against God and, and how his just wrath... Um, um, that, that it was, it was could have been moments away from you experiencing it, but a story like this helps us see it and helps us look back at our salvation and say, "Man, thank you, Lord, that you saved me. Praise God for His grace in my life. My family, I didn't, my my parents did not grow up in Christian families, and my mom actually heard, um, her and my dad got married. They were unsaved, um, working a job, and uh, my, my dad was working in in New York." Um, and uh, my mom, marriage is frustrating. It's not going to go. It's not going well. And she listens to a radio preacher, and hears the gospel for the first time. She grew up going to church. My dad grew up going to church. Never heard the gospel. Never heard the gospel. My mom gets saved and makes such a change in her life that my dad says, "What is this?" And he gets saved. And I, this happened when I was maybe two. So as far as I know, my parents have always been saved. And so because of that, I heard the gospel early and often. That's how God worked in my life. What a blessing. And I look back on that and I think of cousins of mine who did not grow up in a Christian family. And God worked in my family this way. He didn't work in my cousin's family that way. 
it makes us appreciate his grace to us when we see the story. This king wanted to be merciful. And the king was moved by this servant's repentance. Um, the, the only difference from the time the slave walked into his presence and, had, and, and walked out was this, this slave had sorrow over his death. He falls face down before the king. He acknowledges death. He promises to change. And the king's response is amazing. He didn't wait for the repentance to be moved, uh, to be proven. That's actually what Luke 17.3 tells us. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he tells you seven times in a day, I repent, forgive him. I, I don't know about you, but I'm by the seventh time in that day, I'm thinking maybe the first time he wasn't sincere. But if, if he claims repentance, I'm supposed to forgive him. This is so unlike our responses in marriage sometimes. The king here doesn't give silent treatment. He doesn't have a wait-and-see attitude. There's no explosion of anger at this request for forgiveness. How dare you ask me for forgiveness again? And the Lord granted full forgiveness of the debt. In fact, he canceled it. He granted forgiveness knowing the slave's promise to repay was an empty promise. But repentance is what moved the Lord's heart. So if you're looking for a definition of forgiveness, this is where you find it. The slate was wiped clean. The king canceled the debt that the slave owed. He wouldn't hold it against them. I mean, that's, that's the gospel. There's therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Romans 8.1. How much condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus? Zero. Isn't that incredible? You and I get to heaven, and God doesn't say, you know, 90% of it I, I forgave, but that 10%, no condemnation. That's, that's the picture here. So there's a third reason why you need to be a generous forgiver. And that is when you don't, you become the example of miserly forgiveness. And this is where the story takes this unexpected turn for us. Verses 28 through 30, you become the example of miserly forgiveness. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, and has laid, he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but he went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So remember who this slave is. It's you and I when we refuse to forgive. You can't embrace the last similarity with a slave of having been forgiven a massive debt without embracing this similarity as well. And this is where the story shocks us because the language reads as if the slave just walks out of the king's presence. He's just been, I mean, he knew this story that he was, that he was telling him, hey, I'll pay it back. He knew that that was unbelievable. And yet he, he just won the lottery. I mean, it's even, it's even more amazing than that. Okay, because he shouldn't have been playing the lottery in the first place, all right? Uh, but he, he gets this amazing, amazing gift. And he walks out, and like I said, it, it reads as if he just happened to see, as he walked out, this fellow slave that owed him money. And, and here are the characteristics of miserly forgiveness, okay? And these, these show up in our lives, these show up in our marriages. First, he forgot his forgiveness, he was ungrateful. He forgot his forgiveness. He was ungrateful. 30 seconds before, he's begging for his life and the lives of his family members. He had no chance of being forgiven, but somehow he was. But this instant forgiveness had no lasting effect on him. He's not grateful and generous as he should have been. In fact, he, it seems like if he hadn't even seen this guy, he wouldn't have necessarily remembered that this other slave owed him money. He just... He just happened to see him. So he was ungrateful. 
He didn't remember how he'd been forgiven. Just seconds before is how it's written. The second characteristic is he exaggerated the sin against him. He was proud. He exaggerated it. So the slave was forgiven of far more than he needed to forgive. And that's the point of the differing amounts of debt. The ratio between the, do, the two debts is anywhere from 6,000 to 1 to 1 million to 1. But not only the different debts, but the different punishments suggest this. See, the fellow slave could not be sold into slavery because the amount was too small. All right? It's not insignificant. We'll talk about that. But the wicked slave completely overstates this debt. It's way overblown. The slave demanded more than was demanded of him. And, and here's, this is important for us. No one's sin against you can compare to your sin against God. Now, again, I don't know. That, there, there may have been someone in your background who sinned against you in, a, in just a, a, a terrible, tragic way. But this is actually true. One of the things that helps us be forgiving people is recognizing that no one can sin against me in a greater way than I've already sinned against God. You see, our sins are peer-to-peer, -peer, right? But our sins against God are against the God of the universe. No matter how someone sinned against you, it doesn't compare to your cosmic treason against the God of the universe, right? You went your own way. That's what Isaiah says. God called you to, him, to himself. You, you, you trusted Christ, but, but you went your own way. Part of the problem with our unforgiveness is we think, man, this particular sin against me is so great. But do you understand what you're saying? You're saying God could forgive that sin but you can't. In other words, you're demanding more than God does. That's, that's the ugliest form of pride. Yeah, but the sin was against me. See why we struggle to forgive in our marriages? Because we forget that we've been forgiven a huge debt and we magnify our spouse's sins against us. We make them bigger than they are. You, are for, you were forgiven a lot and you're actually asked to forgive very little, comparatively, very little. Any, of course, any talk on forgiveness can unintentionally downplay the hurt and pain that you felt because of your spouse's sin. And I, and I don't want to do that, okay? Forgiveness is not some lighthearted decision. Some of you may have been seriously hurt by your spouse's sin. Forgiveness is not easy. And even in our passage, Jesus is not saying that the debt is insignificant. The fellow slave's debt was equivalent to 100 days' wages. That's, 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 that's how that works. So, I mean, think of your salary. What's 100 days' wages? That's not nothing, right? Okay. Christ is not downplaying the sin against you, but it is pride to think that sins against me are even close in comparison to my sins against God. And if I refuse to forgive my repentant spouse, I'm saying that sins against me are greater than sins against God. So the final characteristic of miserly forgiveness here is he demanded more than repentance. He was vengeful. He was vengeful. So the wicked slave was not moved with compassion by the same request that he had made. The, the fellow slave was repentant. The wicked slave wants more than repentance. He wants vengeance. He wants him to pay. And it's crazy, but marriage can get to this point too. I mean, your spouse's repentance isn't enough. You want him to pay. You want her to hurt. The unforgiving slave should have remembered. The plea for mercy that this unforgiving slave is hearing is a very similar to the, the very plea of mercy that he just gave to the great king. 
It's essentially the identical response and request. And where the king was filled with compassion, the wicked slave was filled with anger, it actually has this picture of him seizing him and choking him, grabbing him by his neck and saying, pay what you owe. That's a shocking position. But it's actually where you and I find ourselves when we refuse to forgive generously. You and I become this example of miserly forgiveness. Christ can forgive our sins, but you and I are choking each other, pay back what you owe. The final reason you have to be a a generous forgiver is because when you do, you actually evidence your genuine salvation. So this is true for two reasons. Those that have received mercy should be the most merciful. So 18, 31 through 34 say this, those that receive mercy should be most merciful. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called them, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due to him. Now all of us are are, are horrified by the injustice of the situation. All of us are repulsed by the wicked servant's action. This story, it can kind of make us mad. I mean, if you didn't know it was describing you, you'd probably be ticked off, okay? But then you'd say, oh, God, wait a minute, that is me. Um, even the king here is horrified. And if you have two kids, you've experienced this, okay? At some point in raising your kids, you've experienced this, right? You've generously allowed one child to maybe have some candy and then been angry when they wouldn't share it with the other one, right? Or, or, I mean, I just gave you some candy. Why can't you give some to your brother? Or maybe you punish one child, um, uh, I'm sorry, maybe you don't punish one child for hitting a sibling. But that same kid goes right away and gets hit by another sibling and, and wants you to hold that other sibling to account. So you got brother here. You didn't punish him when he hit his sister. But then he goes out and his sister hits him. And he, hey, deal with my sister. How could you? It's like, I just, I just dealt with you graciously. Why are you so adamant that your sister be dealt with by the law here and not by grace? That, if you, you've parented, you've experienced this. This slave here should have been called grateful slave or merciful slave. He should not have been called wicked slave because it was sin for him not to forgive his fellow slave. And he should have been known and said for his graciousness and his mercy. And it's especially heinous after he's been forgiven so much. So the principle is simple. Show mercy in the same way that you received mercy from God. Show mercy in the same way that you received mercy from God. The, the, The believing spouse should be more focused on how greatly God has forgiven her than how her spouse has sinned against her. God's compassion and mercy should lead us to mercy and compassion toward our spouse. So, we should be merciful in the way that we've received mercy. The second reason is, those that don't forgive should question if they've ever been forgiven. 1835. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one of his brothers his trespasses. Now, um, we know from scripture that you can't lose your salvation. That's not what's going on here. This story is designed to really shock a first century audience and obviously to shock us as well. Um, the whole point of this is forgiveness. It's not telling us that, hey, if you don't forgive people, then God will take away your forgiveness. That seems to be the picture here because it's using this financial uh, analogy, but that's not actually what, what, what we should take away from this. What we should take away from this is that This startling warning at the end, if I am not a forgiving person, I should actually examine to see whether I've actually ever been forgiven. Because that's what believers do. They forgive. 
you know, we, we might expect Jesus to end the story with something like, you know, come on, guys, do you get the point? Start forgiving more. You just need to be more forgiving. Let me give you a noogie here. You know, we, we might expect Jesus to do that. What's wrong with you guys? That's not how he ends it. Christ's ending has more bite than we expect. He says rather directly, my heavenly Father will do likewise if you don't forgive people from your heart. So this guy was handed over to the prison torturer. Surely God is going to do that to you or me, or, or is he? That's exactly what he'll do if you're not saved. And those that aren't generous with their forgiveness prove that they're not genuinely saved. How can you be forgiven such a massive debt and be so stingy with those around you? One person said this, Jesus sees no incongruity in the actions of a heavenly father who forgives so bountifully and punishes so ruthlessly, and neither should we. Indeed, it is precisely because he is a God of such compassion and mercy that he cannot possibly accept as his own those devoid of compassion and mercy. So forgiveness is conditional in this sense. When I don't forgive my repentant spouse, I might be showing that I'm not actually forgiven by God. You cannot be God's if you're not a generously forgiving person. We, we see the same type of warning in the Lord's Prayer. You know, the, the Lord's Prayer starts with our Father, uh, which art in heaven. Um, that's Only Christians can call God their Father. That's how we know this is a prayer for believers. Only Christians call God their Father. And what does it say in verse 12 and verses 14 and 15 of Matthew 6? And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. See, God treats us on the basis of how we've forgiven others. You are never to refuse to forgive a repentant spouse. You're never to refuse to forgive a repentant spouse. And it's not the words, I forgive you, that Christ is looking for. Your forgiveness must be genuine. It has to be from the heart. So I hope this is a passage that challenges you to be a generous forgiver. I, I hope that God's forgiveness of you at salvation, the gospel, makes you a more forgiving person. And I, I realize that when we're talking about forgiveness, we cannot possibly cover all the questions that you might have about forgiveness. Your circumstances in marriage may be complex and require the wisdom of another, your pastors, to help you sort them out. But, but let, me, let me give you some practical help here. I think having a definition of forgiveness helps us. This is not original with me. But I, I, I really, I think it, it fits biblically, and I think it's really helpful. It's, it's, it's definitely memorable. So how do, how do you define forgiveness? It's a promise not to bring it up to their face, not to bring it up behind their back, and not to dwell on it. And every part of that threefold promise is important. Not bringing it up to their face means that it doesn't get brought up in the heat of a later argument, right? That's what we tend to do. Yeah, well, you always, remember that time you... No, if I forgive it, it's done. And not bringing it up behind their back means that it doesn't become part of your conversation to, you know, your mother or your friends or those with grown kids, your daughter or your son. Man, can you believe what your mom did the other day? That's not forgiveness. And those maybe, maybe that's obvious that that's what forgiveness is. I think this third part of the promise, not dwelling on it, is the hardest of all. Because you have to purposely turn your thoughts to someone else. I've told people this. You know, some people sing in the shower. I settle grudges in the shower. Um, it is amazing to me. I'll, I'll, I'll be, t- you know, wake up in the morning, I get in the shower, um, you know, washing my hair or something, and I'll be like having a conversation with someone who's obviously not there. And of course, I, I probably didn't need to tell you that. That was probably not the obvious. Um, but I'm having a conversation with them, and I, of course, I am winning the arguments. Okay, I'm winning this argument because, hey, if you're going to fictionalize it, make yourself the hero. So. <laughs> 
And I, I find myself doing that. I'm like, wait a minute, Craig, what do you? I, so I started uh, a few years ago, started listening to scripture or to podcasts in the morning or sometimes music while I'm in the shower just to help me think on things that would please God. And it was just weird that I found this, this habit in my life of, of settling grudges, which is not an example of forgiveness, is it? And, and I mean, these people didn't even know that I wasn't forgiving them, but let me tell you, I was washing with soap very aggressively at that moment, okay? Um, I think not dwelling on it is, that, is the hardest part of the promise to keep. That, it, that you're saying, I'm not going to, when, when, when my mind goes there, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna change my thinking. I'm not gonna think about that. I'm not gonna let my mind stay there. When, you're, when you forgive someone, you're saying this will not affect how I relate to them anymore. That's kind of a hard thing. Now, what do you do if your spouse doesn't admit their sin? That's one of the questions that comes up. And this is where it gets tricky. Ephesians 4.32 says, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And, and so some read that saying that I cannot forgive someone if they don't repent because obviously God doesn't forgive those that repent, which is true for salvation. The problem is that Ephesians 4.32 isn't written to tell us when not to forgive. You know, it comes at the end of, this, of, of the chapter of 4. Paul's not writing it to encourage us to be less forgiving. He wants us to forgive generously like God. And God doesn't hold your sin against us. For believers, that's, that's how we should forgive. One pastor said this, to make conditionality the gist of Christ-like forgiving seems to miss the whole point of what Scripture is saying. When Scripture instructs us to forgive in the manner we have been forgiven, what is in view is not the idea of withholding forgiveness until the offender expresses repentance. The attitude of the forgiver is where the focus of Scripture lies, not the terms of forgiveness. So if your spouse doesn't admit your sin, you're still called to treat them in a forgiving way, even if the actual words cannot be said until your spouse says, I was wrong. Now, there are a lot of more difficult situations than I've sketched out here, and I believe that God's word has answers for them. Uh, on your list of resources, I've given you some links that will answer more questions about forgiveness. I think um, the book, The Freedom and Power of Forgiveness, is one of several good books on forgiveness. Um, I, I've written a couple blog postings on that where I try to deal with some of these questions a little more specifically, and so maybe that's a help to you as well. The question for Matthew 18, though, for all of us is, in your marriage, are you the generous forgiver? Every one of us should aspire to that, right? We should aspire to so model the gospel in our marriage that, that we become the one, that, that we're trying to out-forgive our spouse. That's what we should be thinking about. Not, how can I hold on to this? How can I, be, how can I begrudge them forgiveness? How can I be stingy? But no, how can I, how can I, be, how can I out-forgive them? How can I be more generous in it? That's how we should think about that. It's a great passage. It, it, I, I love it because it, it brings us back to how we've been forgiven and therefore I can forgive other people, including the person I'm closest to, my spouse.